1 John can be found on page 1857 of the Pew Bible. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Please turn to page 871 for the reading from Psalms. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green, proclaiming, the Lord is upright, he is my rock, and there is no wickedness in him. For those of you who I haven't met before, my name is Nicole, and I recently joined staff here at High Point. Uh, I grew up going to church in a small church of about 50 people in the country in small town Wisconsin. And the church was slowly dying. About half of the people were over 60 and seemed disinterested and disengaged. And so in my mind, I equated growing older in age with growing more distant from God and lacking a spiritual fervor. I found that fervor when I came to college and I was a part of a college ministry where I was constantly with people in my peer group. And I thought that I had finally found what would help spur me on to follow Christ deeply. When I started attending High Point at the end of my junior year, I saw people of all different ages and assumed that the same thing would be true here of generations older than myself, that their spiritual fervor would have left them. But what I experienced was greatly different. Older members met with one another to pray. They led global missions teams, served on the worship team, greeted new guests at the door, and mentored younger people in their faith. Older members wanted to get to know me, invited me to join their small group, offered to pick me up from campus, invited me over for coffee. They invested in me. I saw stable vibrancy in their lives and in their relationships with God, and a desire to shepherd a younger generation to walk well with God for a lifetime. While in my college ministry, I saw a lot of spiritual fervor, and it was real. What I found here was fervor with maturity something that I couldn't experience in a cohort of my peers. It felt like I had instantly gained a family of older grandparents, older aunts and uncles, older cousins, who out of loving conviction cared about the growth of a young, relatively arrogant 20-year-old girl. I heard Nick preach about being a multi-generational church and the value of multiple generations, but then I actually experienced that. I had a whole new family that I could ask questions, who I could learn from, that I could look up to, and who I could be mentored by. 
I think the most significant effect of mature believers on me was that these older generations showed me that I, a 20-year-old at the time, really could walk well with God for the rest of my life, that the best years of my faith and ministry really should and could be ahead of me like I had so often heard Jim Tanner say. Having veterans of the race who are pillars of faith around me showed me that I really could run the race marked out for me with perseverance for the rest of my life because I could look around me and see dozens upon dozens upon dozens who were doing just that to the very end. That was inspiring, and I knew that I wanted to be a part of a church like that, that that was a church worth coming back to Madison for. Thanks, Nicole. You did a great job of reading that just the way I wrote it. <laughs> um, n- normally, if you're new at High Point, we go through series in books of the Bible, but um, I, we just finished a series. We're about to start one, and um, this morning I'm going to take some time to talk about one of our core values as a church that we have to keep bringing up from time to time to make sure that we are understanding it and believing it. And that is the forgotten blessing of being truly intergenerational and valuing all generations by all generations. One of our 21-year-old interns dug up this passage that I had never read quite this way before this week, where he says about the righteous, they will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green. Don't you want that for when you're like 84, if you should make it? I mean, that is, um, biblically speaking, Paul said in 2 Corinthians, he says, though we're outwardly wasting away, inward we're being renewed day by day. Now, he was speaking of prison, but I think that that's generally true of all of life. Our oldest attenders and, and members, in some ways, if the full gospel promise is being lived out in them, are the most alive people in our midst. However, that is actually not culturally how we value generations presently in the American culture we live in. Um, Our culture does not see the biblical emphasis on the value of age and the veteran generations. Um, And it's not necessarily intentional. You're not going to find anybody out there being like, you know, we should just, everybody older than us should just, you know, get out of the way and die off and quit leaving carbon footprints. But generally speaking, there is this feeling that generations older than ourselves are at least irrelevant. And it it comes from kind of the structures of our culture. For example, um, over-belief in science, believing that science is more than it is, sometimes called scientism, that says scientific knowledge is the only kind that matters, is a kind of really narrow thinking that leads us away from believing in the importance of wisdom and accrued knowledge of experience, because real knowledge can only come through experiments, right? Which can generally lead to this belief in progress, which is— you know, progress is intermittent. We're usually, you're usually falling back and moving forward at the same time in your personal life and as a society. But there's this general idea today that is especially sold to younger people that we're progressing as a society right now. And so therefore, the people that are older than you are from these sort of like benighted, oppressive generations that therefore not only have nothing to teach you, but if you learn from them, you'll probably become more bigoted and racist, right? Which also leads towards the general psychological view of parenting, Right? Generally speaking, in your adulthood, you're supposed to generally believe in order to comfort yourself that basically everything that's wrong with you 
you got from your parents. And everything that's right about you, you developed along the way yourself. Which, of course, a lot of the stuff that is wrong with us, our parents did. And we're involved heavily in the formation of those things. And that's true of almost everything that's right about you, too. Right? And the same thing is true on the sort of the economic side of things, that we generally have this consumption mentality that unless you can produce an advertisement right now that tells me how valuable this thing you're selling is for me at this second to make my life better, right now I'm not interested. The problem is most of the important things in life are ordinary things that usually it's only after you become part of them that later on you see the great blessing that they are. In fact, that is kind of the difference between blessing and benefit. Benefit is something that you promote, you, um, you go after directly, and you're like, if I do this, I'm going to get that. Blessing happens this way. I'm going to do the right thing for the right reasons, and then sneaking up on me like a blowing breeze, all of a sudden you go, oh, where did this come from? And it came from God blessing you doing the right thing for the right reason. And disposability, right? Basically, anything that stops producing, you get rid of. Well, what happens when somebody who's produced all their life can't do some of the things that they did for years, which is why you're alive and you can enjoy the life you're enjoying? There's no internal sense of debt, moral obligation, offering of respect for past achievements, or any of those things. And that, though we wouldn't naturally say that about the generations around us, sometimes that's the way we naturally feel unless we are persuaded otherwise. And the Bible's attitude about the generation's relationship to each other and framing that in relationship to our attitude towards people with age and experience, the veterans, so to speak, is that God both demands and blesses common love between the generations. God demands and blesses a common love between the generations. The way we say this in our core value at High Point is this way. We believe a healthy church seeks to be a complete community, valuing all generations by all generations. That's sort of the key phrase. Valuing all generations by all generations. Therefore, we intentionally point the generations toward each other and resist expressions of worship and ministry that value one generation to the alienation of another. It's one of the reasons why we have two services that are basically the same. It's one of the reasons why you sang a contemporary song today, you sang a hymn today, and most days you will sing a gospel song. Most sets will be contemporary song, gospel song, hymn, every week. For a very specific reason, which I won't get into now. So first, let's talk about sort of the biblical framework for this. And then I want to say a little bit about what's actually been going really well in this church about this, because I don't want to be like, hey, let's just do it better. Because actually, this church has done great things in intergenerational ministry. I'm really proud of how, um, of how we've lived this out. And then I also want to talk about what we have to believe and how we can push forward, okay? So first, let's start with first things first. The first thing that the Bible focuses on is the first intergenerational relationship, is the parent-child relationship. All of the other ones flow out of this, and all of the others echo this. And that is, is that in the Big Ten, the first Ten Commandments where God sets up what a people that have his justice and peace among them would look like in his covenant, in the top five of the top ten is this one. And notice the other things that are its peers in terms of importance, right? Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. And then notice its peer commandments, you should—like, it's above murder, guys. 
right? You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, right? Calvin said that the way the, re, the way the Ten Commandments were set up was all of the Ten Commandments stood for more commandments. They were the summary. So do not commit adultery stood for all of the sexual regulations of the proper ways we were supposed to relate to each other sexually. And yet that stood for them all. Similarly, obeying your father and mother and honoring your father and mother actually stood for a, a wider set of commandments and responsibilities that we have between and among generations. And l- later in Ephesians 6 of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul would say, listen, when he was talking to parents and children, he's particularly speaking to children at this moment, he says, think about this commandment. Obey or honor your father and mother. It's the first commandment that has a promise built into it. With murder, he's just like, don't do it. With this one, he says, honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land. It is the attending blessing on that commandment. But later on in the Bible, it also gets spread out even wider because in 1 Timothy, Paul is writing to this younger minister, and he says, he says, listen, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. So what, what he's saying is, is he's saying, actually, your responsibility to honor your father and mother, there is actually a horizontal effect to that, where you as a younger man have to treat every older man as though he were your father, even when you're rebuking him because he's doing something wrong and acting immature. Even at that moment, you treat him with the honor you would give rightly to your father, not what you would actually give your father, but the what you should give your father— And same with an older woman as your mother. Now, Paul was writing to a younger man. If the roles were reversed and he was writing to an older minister, he might have written it really differently. He'd probably say the same thing about younger women. But he he would say, treat, you know, older men as brothers. And he'd probably say something about treating younger men as sons with care and respect and wanting them to be everything that they could be. Right? Another thing to look at is, as you go through the, Old Test- the New Testament, the church is to be supposed to be led by elders. It is not a mistake, or it, it's not um, an accident that the word elder and the concept of elder is used preeminently, not pastor. The word for pastor, which just means shepherd, he who takes care of lambs, is only used in the New Testament for church leadership twice. But elder is used very commonly both in Acts and in Timothy and in Titus, all over. Why? Because the assumption was, like the nation of Israel in the New Testament church, because it was completely transcultural, you should look to older, exemplary, mature people to lead, to lead you as a people. That the church, and actually the expression of the church in every society, should look for the older, exemplary believers and should charge them with leading their community. Now, there's lots of things in the New Testament that are not culturally specific, and you could go to different places in the world and they'll be really different. The music will be really different, or how the preaching is will be really different, or what is done before or after church is really different, how long church is is really different. And all that's left open in the New Testament, to do what you think is best for the context you're in, but not this. When it comes to who should lead the church, he, he doesn't say look to, to people who feel gifted for ministry or that are good at talking or something like that. They say choose the most godly 
older, experienced people. In fact, if you look at the virtues that Paul demands of people who will lead the church, none of them have to do with skills. They all have to do with character. And when you read them carefully, almost all of them are the kinds of parts of character that people tend to build over a long period of time. Like temperate, being temperate. That is not getting angry and keeping your cool and taking things proportionately and not overreacting. Like, that is not normally something you go like, let's find a 21-year-old. He's probably really good at that. <laughs> right? I had, a, I had a number of Christian virtues when I was 21. That was not one of them that I was really good at. It, take, it just takes time to, like, overreact and then see that you've hurt the relationship and realize that this doesn't get you anywhere and blah, 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 blah. Because you're caught between this, like, well, wait, shouldn't I fight for justice? And wait, this is right, and I should— But what about peace? And how do you balance those two? It just takes a few decades to work that all out. And so it's often elders that are—their reputations are above reproach. They're personally temperate. They're self-controlled. They're respectable. They've developed a hospitable atmosphere in their home. They've become gentle. They're not quarrelsome. They've realized that arguing just most of the time is a waste and is alienating unless you discern it's the right time. Also, you can see this as a universal biblical attitude, just like, for example, in Leviticus 19.32. Rise in the presence of the aged. Show respect for the elderly and revere your God, I am the Lord. Two things about that. One is, it means that your responsibility to revere and respect the veteran generations <clears throat> is actually um, universal. It's, he says, rise in the presence of anyone who's aged. But he also says, connects it directly to God. That is, if you do this, you show that you believe that. If you show respect for somebody older, you show that the Lord, you believe that God is the Lord. Now, it's interesting, the very next verse if you read in Leviticus 19 is actually about the alien and the immigrant, how you treat them. So, in some sense, the, the argument is the people that you don't think you're getting that much from, the people that aren't useful to you and that you think are somehow a burden on you, how you treat them is the clearest way to demonstrate what you think about God. Because you'll also find many places in the Bible that teach us about the poor. You can see it in the narrative of younger people doing really idiotically foolish things by not listening to their elders. For example, Rehoboam, who is ironically the son of the wisest king ever in the history of Israel, apparently did not pay a lot of attention to his father's teaching, though his father begs him to in the first five chapters of the book of Proverbs. And when he becomes king, he has a choice to make because the people are like, listen, your dad was really hard on us. Will you relax a little bit and we'll serve you? We totally accept you as our king, but can you just like pull it back a little bit? <clears throat> and he has to decide every new king, if he doesn't want to die, has to secure his kingdom. And so how do you do that? And generally speaking, the way you do that is you go, no, I'm in charge. You back off. I'll do what I want. I am the monarch. Like, you don't question me, right? Yet the older men who had advised Solomon said, actually, Rehoboam, your dad was really hard on them. Like, he built the whole temple. He built this enormous palace for himself. He built ships sailing all over to East Africa and in the Mediterranean. Like, 
He built walls around numerous cities. He, like, nobody ever built the kind of stuff Solomon built. Like, it was unbelievable what he accomplished in 40 years. And they're like, dude, you really should back off and give them a rest. And Rehoboam turned and he talked with the other 20-year-olds. And he's like, what should I do? And they're like, dude, you should say, like, my father's pinky wasn't as big as my waist. Like, I'm, I'm, just, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm gonna thrash you. He whipped you with whips. I'm gonna whip you with scorpions. Right? And what happened? The kingdom split. He lost 10 of the 12 tribes. His entire kingdom fell apart. And Israel was diminished generation after generation until its collapse. Everything his father built in a lifetime, he managed to destroy in about 30 minutes. Because he didn't listen to his elders, because the young people had read the political philosophy books and they knew what you were supposed to do, but because they hadn't lived the last 50 years, they didn't know the context of where the people were at. And so they didn't understand the times and how to shepherd that group of people, and so they blew the whole thing up because they wouldn't listen. <clears throat> or, I don't know if you know what the last verse of the Old Testament is. It's on the screen, so you're about to know, right? But, the, but here's the last, like, of all the stuff that's said in the Old Testament, there's going to be a 400-year period of silence before the Messiah comes. What is the last thing God tells people before he, he closes up the Old Testament? And this is what it is. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. That is, the illustration of what redemption would look like in a human society society that God leaves his people with. The, the thing that if it were to happen, you would know that the messianic age would come, that the way of the Lord had been prepared. The people's hearts were really open to follow God the way they should. Now, the, the clearest illustration that you would know that that was about to happen was that parents and children, older generation and younger generations, hearts would be turned towards each other. That they would appreciate each other. That they would love each other. That they would, they would recognize the, the place each holds and how each one helps the other. <clears throat> and then lastly in this section, when you, the first sermon in the New Testament about what the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus means, he says, here's, here's how we know that the new covenant has come. Here's how we know that Christ's death has saved us and that the coming of the Spirit will totally transform everything. Because what was said in the Old Testament by the prophet Joel is coming true right now. And he says, in the last days, God says, he's quoting from Joel, that I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Meaning, in the Old Testament, there were very few women who were prophets. There were a few, but very few. But in this time, God was going to pour out a spirit on both genders and all ages. And especially understanding prophetically, like, where God wants to take us. If an old man is dreaming a dream prophetically about what God is doing right now, where he wants to take us, it means he's still engaged. He's still alive. He still wants to know, where are we going today? Where are we going to be tomorrow? What does God want from us? How can I obey him now? How can I know how God wants to bring the redemption of Jesus more widely, more deeply, more broadly? Well, he's 100% not checked out. And the sign that the Spirit is moving like a wind among a people, P 
Peter says. He says, don't you remember what Joel said? This is how we know the Spirit is working right now, that the new covenant has come, because men and women and old people and young people are experiencing the work of the Spirit together with each other. So, I want to say that I have seen in the six years that I've been here some really, really great signs that God is already doing this sort of work. In 2010, when I got here, I went, um, I went to 14 gatherings of people who'd been part of High Point um, up until that point, and I said, what do you want to see? And in almost every one of them, somebody said, usually somebody with a gray head, said, High Point used to be a place where there were younger people. And they came here because they found something worthwhile, and it was, their vibrancy really affected this church, and it was a great thing. And I always responded, in most cases, with, um, be careful what you wish for, because you know what happens when they show up, right? You'll go to drink some coffee, and it'll already be gone, right? And like, <laughs> your favorite music won't be played all the time, and someone will be in your parking space. Probably not, because they come late. But like, you, you know what I'm saying, right? And, um, and yet, I've seen this happening. Um, we've seen, um, not just an influx of that younger cohort, but I've seen, I have received very few complaints from older people, like, all oh, these young people, they're blah, 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 I can't stand the tight pants. I mean, it's been very, very little of that. You know, there have been some like, hey, does it have to be that loud, or do we have to, is, do we really want coffee in the sanctuary? And, um, but for the most part, I mean, even when the elders are like, oh, seriously, we're like, okay, look, Ellen Flotmeyer got a really good lid for the coffee mugs. We actually—I don't know if you know this—we did a timed spill test in here. Like, this is—like, no, no kidding, this happened. Like, we got those coffee cups with a lid properly sealed. We tipped it over, and, like, Ellen Flotmeyer timed how long it took for a specific amount of ounces of coffee to pour out of it because we were trying to, like, negotiate this, like— Listen, younger people don't believe that if you're drinking coffee, the spirit leaves you. Like, they just don't, they don't, they don't think that that informality is an insult hospitality-wise to God's spirit. They think, Nick's going to preach like an hour, I'm going to have to concentrate through this, so I need some coffee. <laughs> right? And listen, I'm, I remember guys, and some of these guys were in their 70s, and they were like, oh, I just really don't like that. And I was like, guys, they're not going to understand that. And they were like, okay, well, let's not ruin the room. And if they worship, and they love, and if this is, then okay. And they were like, they, and that, I've just seen that over and over, like people embracing. And I've also seen younger people turn their hearts towards older people. I've never been in a church this size or larger that has had as many one-on-one -on -one intergenerational mentoring relationships as this church. Um, my wife, who runs the women's mentoring side, she does the matchmaking. It's kind of funny that, like, the Jewish convert is the matchmaker for the women. But, um, I mean, she was saying the other day that it was like a part-time job. You know, she's like, man, this is a lot of work. But it's because there's so many women getting together. Um, the church has functioned pretty well. Almost, you know, I don't know if you know this, almost two-thirds of our staff is in their 20s. And then we've got, you know, Mike Beresford, right? Just kidding. But we've got, we've got, we've got three or four staff that are not in their 20s, and they love it. They love working with younger staff, and the younger staff grow in productivity really fast, and it's been amazing to see how much we could accomplish. 
um, Chloe and Leo Tyndall in their later, se- later 70s or early 80s, I'm not, I didn't ask, they didn't tell, um, have, they've been retired for years, but like, guess what? They spend a good bit of time. In fact, I think right now in the office area, there's two big suitcases of stuff that's going to go to Guatemala because they've been working with a ministry there that's trying to end childhood starvation, especially in the hill country. They're in their 80s. They pestered me for like seven months to go to Guatemala a couple years ago. They're like, look, we go like twice a year. I don't see what's wrong with you. Can't go. There's a number of people that have intergenerational small groups. I know the Harms at the alpaca farm and um, the Tanners. There's a number of people who um, host intergenerational small groups. And I hear, I hear from two things about it. One, it's hard at first for everybody. And then usually over time, what I hear is that it's really great and incredibly enriching. And I could not have gotten this advice from so-and-so on. Um, I, I got a, a testimony from Estelle the other day that, like, there were some women that came up to her, younger women in their 20s, who said, listen, we actually, we don't have any idea how to cook anything. And in terms of wanting to be able to cook for a family or a husband or maybe somebody we would date someday, or just being able to, to do Christian hospitality. Like, we don't really know how to do any of these home things. I mean, much less, like, fold one of those sheets that are curved on the end that nobody can fold, Right? <laughs> Apparently, Estelle knows how to do that. So I'm, I'm going to come over Thursday, if that's okay. Um, but so she just—and and here's the thing. Like, I know mentoring is tough, but it turns out she cooks anyway, right? So all she had to do was say, okay, we're going to cook then. Why don't you come over? Let's do the thing. And then they all sat down and ate together and had a great time. And the, like, the, the Volos. So, so um, he, he's a doctor— in his, I think, 70s, and he volunteers in a high school Sunday school class. A high school Sunday school class. So you can imagine the incandescent nonsense being shared around him while he's sitting there, right? And yet, he, I mean, he's there, and he listens, and he goes, huh, it's a really interesting idea. Let me, let me try a thought out on you. about this? Um, and I just, I'm trying to picture this matter-of-fact German in his 70s who's a doctor and these like 14 to 16-year-olds talking around him. It's just hilarious. <laughs> but it's glorious. Most of Derek's high school volunteers are in their 20s. Right? And you just go through over and over again and you can just see all these situations in which the generations are working together, and where they're actually intentionally serving each other. You go to the missions board meeting, and you're going to find people from their 20s to their 70s, I think maybe early 80s even, sitting around that table. So, there's a ton of that great stuff happening, and I just—it's great— Recognize it as great. Praise God. That's evidence. That's actually evidence of a spirit. You want to know if God's spirit is moving? The Bible teaches that where that is happening, God's grace is working. That's really good news. That should be really encouraging. I hope it's encouraging to you. Now, let's talk about our convictions and like what, what do we do? How do we go? Where do we, whatever. The first is, is that I think sometimes it's helpful to just split up in your mind structurally, like, what do we're taught? When we say different generations, what do we mean? This is, I made this up. This is not some kind of sociological intelligent thing, right? But this is how I think about it in church ministry. I think of four generations. I think of the incubating generation, the emerging generation, the leading generation, and the advising generation. Incubating generation are people who don't do their own laundry, okay? 
these are people who aren't emancipated. They're, they're, they're kids and students, and they aren't—they're not in charge of themselves, and they're not part of doing—taking responsibility for the world they live in. They are free riders. But they are important because they are all the buds we have for our future flowers and fruit. And so they're very important, but they're not really doing much yet. And, but they matter. They're a generation, and they matter. Secondly is the emerging generation. These are people who are younger adults, who are in their major learning adult decades. For me, that's 20s and 30s. Um, the 20s should be a massive learning decade, where you're learning two-thirds for every one-third that you're doing. And then, I'm, and then 30s, relatively close to that. And I'm actually hoping that the 40s are going to be a learning decade, too. I'm 39, so this is my last chance at this while I'm still technically sort of young. And the leading generation are the people who bear the main weight and responsibility for the stuff that happens. They're the people who are in charge. They're the senior pastors. They're the CEOs. They're the boss at work. They're the managers. They're the people who are making decisions and bear responsibility. That's the leading generation. Wide age group there. And then the advising generation is those who have recognized it was time for them to pass on that responsibility and weight and decision-making to another group of people who are younger than them. And they are then now released from that and yet they're still here. And so what is their role? And so in the younger generation here, what I mean the emerging generation, their role is to, is to bring it, to involve yourself, to get in there, and to, to bring the heat, so to speak, to say, why is it like this? What are we doing? Where are we going? How can we do this? And to bring those verses said before, right? The young are respected for their what? Strength. The old for their gray head, right? That really is what they have. They can stay up more nights in a row and not collapse. They have, they're not going to hurt their back when they move the thing. They just, they have a certain kind of strength that isn't possessed in later years, right? And it's, and they also have a passion and a certain amount of idealism that is helpful, a certain amount that's not. And them bringing that is really important. The leading generation's job is to lead well, such that they inspire the emerging generation and that they listen to the advising generation, right? And the advising generation's job is to, is to bless. It, it's to advise, but there's two things you have to—three things you have to do first. Not be curmudgeonly. Affirm and bless. Encourage. And then those people will eventually come around where you can advise. But your job is to basically—people in the advising generation usually have no idea how much influence they have. They feel like the younger generations don't want to listen to them. They don't care what they have to say. And so they just kind of silently step back and shut up. But they actually have an enormous amount of influence. That's why the younger people get so angry when you are, like, curmudgeonly about them. If they didn't care, it wouldn't matter to them, but it really bothers them. Right. I'll talk more about that as we move on here. Um, first thing, everybody has to believe this, hopefully. Mature adulthood is intergenerational. What that means is that you don't need a group for your cohort, right? You are a grown-up when we don't have to make youth groups for you anymore. When we started the young adult group, when Ashley Vale was here, before Lisa Dolger, like back in 2011 or 12, I said, okay, here's the point of the young adult group. 
so that they can come together to decide on and then enact intergenerational adulthood. That's it. It's basically the place where you go, listen, you're not a grown-up until you enter into those doors and you talk with five people, and after you've talked with five people, you realize that one was 74, and one was 46, and one was four, and one was 22, and one was something else. And you just naturally do that because you just, you see all people, you don't just see your people. If you just still see your people, you're not in the mature grown-up cohort yet, because grown-ups, for grown-ups, everybody is our peer or our responsibility. And so that means you move easily between all people, and it doesn't really matter. And as an adult, you recognize that all of, all of creation is God's creation, so everything is interesting, and if everything is interesting, then you can find everybody interesting. And you don't need to just be around people that think and act and want to talk about the stuff you want to talk about. So join an, inter, an intergenerational context. That is a church, intergenerational small group, and stuff that's not even a church. Other things, too. Secondly is that mentoring, that is, discipling intergenerationally, is incredibly enriching. So discipleship in Christian faith usually is like when one person who knows Jesus well helps another people, person get to know Jesus a lot better. But you can do that in an age-peer relationship. It bec- generally speaking, we use the word mentor to refer to an intergenerational dynamic. And that intergenerational dynamic adds a lot. It's incredibly enriching. And generally the rule I use is two life stages because you want somebody that's further along enough That they have perspective on your situation, but they're not so removed from it that they don't have any compassion on you So for example, if you get like a 22 year old that's like um, Thinks their life is really hard With like a 78 year old person who went through the Great Depression is caring for a spouse with dementia They have a really hard time feeling like the 22-year-old's life is really hard, okay? That's just—they're like, oh, your life is—oh, yeah, your life is so hard. Why don't I cook for you, you know? But but if, you know, your average 22-year-old single person is being mentored by somebody who's married with a couple of children, right? They're they're married. They've got some kids. They're two life stages ahead. They still remember what it was like to be that age and to waste 70% of your time and so think you're really busy and like feel, right? And yet, they also have—they also now like are shopping for for people. They have things coming over. They're they're adjusting lots of different areas of their life. Their life is, is exponentially more complicated than the person they're mentoring. And so they also know that they need to help this person take some steps. So generally speaking, two life stages. They're not your peer, but they're not so far removed that they don't have any compassion on you. And so generally speaking, the the attitude for this, I would say, is be a mentor, find a mentor, point out a mentor, grow in faith so you could be a decent mentor, and bless a mentor. Some of you are like, look, I just can't—I can't make the drives. I can't do the—I'm just not in a place in my life where I can do that right now. Great. Well, help somebody find a mentor and bless them. Tell them how important it is. Tell them how encouraging you find it that they're doing it. Because people need that. Because doing these things have real costs. No matter how much the Bible affirms the importance and dignity of age, it never does it to the humiliation of merit spiritually. Ever. And so— um, God will raise up younger people who have disproportionate um, spiritual quality, and space has to be made for them. 
right? So in 1 Timothy 4, Paul says to Timothy, this younger pastor, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. You devote yourself to the ministry, you, you preach, you pray, you read scripture publicly, you command and teach these things. This is what you're here to do. You do it. You don't let anybody tell you that you're such a whippersnapper, you don't have anything to say. And also, age doesn't mean that you're not going to waste most of, the, most of the trials that you go through. Age means that you've had experiences. Experiences mean that you have track record. Track record means that you could have learned a lot of lessons, but it doesn't actually mean that you did learn a lot of lessons. In Titus 2, um, Paul's talking to older women. He says, listen, you, you older women need to learn how to be godly and learn how to do these. And he goes over a number of things in relationship to godliness. And he says, then you can teach younger women to, and then he goes through a number of things. That is, you're not going to be a good mentor until you become a good mentor. Unless you invest deeply in real growth and godliness, you're really not going to be ready. Like, you can— for example, if you mentor somebody who's like younger than you, they're like, yeah, my life is like this, and you're like, oh yeah, I remember that. That's so hard. That's not good mentoring. Like, yes, you got to listen, and yes, you should sympathize. But unless you—unless—when they say, so have you ever been through—how what, what, have you ever—unless you can be like, yeah, I remember that. And I remember—I remember I was right in the midst of it, and one day I was reading my Bible during my morning devotions, and this came across, and I thought— Man, that's probably really important. And then I talked to my mentor, and this is what she said. And man, that hit me like a ton of bricks. And I thought, but I didn't really want to repent. But that Thursday at small group, when I was like, hey, I kind of feel like God is doing this. Does that resonate with anybody for me? And, and I, like two people I really respected were like, yep, I've been trying to tell you that for two years. I just couldn't find a good opportunity. And then I just realized it, and then this happened, and then I tried this, and this is how this person responded to that. And then it's—that's helpful. That only happens if you did that. The kind of value we have to offer people that we hope to mentor is directly proportionate to what has actually happened to us and in us. You're going to suffer enough pain just by living. The question is, are you looking? Are you learning? Are you accepting things about yourself, or are you rebelling against those things that shouldn't be? Like, what's happening? Because merit, not earning your salvation, but just your worth as a mentor, it's not automatic. This is not a sentimental thing. This isn't like, well, we're all the same. Everybody has things to teach everybody else. That is sentimental, clap-chappy nonsense. It is ridiculously false in the widest possible sense. Yes, you can learn the right time from a broken clock twice a day. Yeah, it's possible to learn things from anybody. Basically, if you're a learner and you're really good at pulling something learnable out of people who aren't teaching very well, which still puts the burden on you. But for the most part, the greatest teachers are the greatest teachers. And the people who have the best content to share are the people who have walked through it and learned it and grown and studied and travailed and prayed and hurt and called out to God and taken steps of faith. And even if you fail, your failures are incredibly instructive. But not if you do nothing. The only thing to learn from that is disappointment. Another is, is that every generation 
naturally has attitudes that are their generation's pitfall. It's not this fear and pride doesn't manifest itself the same way as we move all the time. As we move along, as we go through different life stages, they're different. One quote related to this by Chesterton that I like is this one. I believe that what really happens in history is this. The old man is always wrong, and the young people are always wrong about what is wrong with him. The practical form—did you get that? Okay, good. The practical form it takes is this, that while the old man may stand by some stupid custom, the young man always attacks it with some theory that turns out to be equally stupid. (laughs) Generally speaking, in all of our life stages, there is some attitude that fear and pride creates that we have to overcome and repent of and believe Jesus about in a humble and systematic way. And, um, and it's different. It changes. So, for example, the incubating generation, you have these younger people who are becoming teenagers, and they're going through this psychological process we call differentiation, which is parents call being terrible. And they're, they're basically trying to become themselves, and they know that they can't do it by just doing whatever their parents say. There has to be this kind of like, they're making their own decisions, even if they decide similarly to their parents. And the problem is, is that Kids feel really threatened by that process and parents tend to feel really threatened by that process instead of just a difficult process of maturation It just becomes a war Probably because of the parents probably because of the kids and in addition to that Where the what where younger people usually turn is they turn to their peers and they give their peers Inordinate and a very dangerous amount of influence in their life because their peers are idiots when it comes to what human beings should be They have no idea because they have no experience. and They have no perspective so worst, the teenage years are basically the worst possible time you could possibly listen to your peers. And it's about the time where people start inordinately listening to their peers. And I would just encourage you, if you're in that life stage or approaching it, it's fine to have friends, and it's fine to talk to your friends about what they think. But they're going to be wrong about most everything, like you, and your parents are going to be right about most of the things you disagree with them about. So you have to find your, you have to find your independent space in a way other than making war with everybody who cares about you and could tell you the truth. It's really important. And that is the way the incubating generation usually allows pride and fear to come out in a terrible attitude that destroys their ability to love and value each generation from each generation. The emerging generation generally, um, Right now in our culture, it is very easy to settle in the single 20s life stage and not progress. Do you know what the number one thing that doubles or triples a man's income in America is? If you want to get a man from what he's making right now to triple, do you know the number one most predictive thing to do that? For him to marry. Yep, he gets married. It's the number one thing. Because most dudes, like, they're making 30 grand, and they, like, share an apartment, and they could afford a boat, and, like, they just kind of would rather just do stuff, right? It's when they get married, and they have a wife who, like, you know, talks to them about it, and they, they realize that there's this, like, home, and they're, like, leading a family, and they're pretty soon going to have kids, and we're going to want a house, and they start thinking, like, how can I progress? How can, like, and then they start asking their bosses for raises, and their boss says no, and then he goes, well, like, what am I going to do? Like, I'm going to have to get a new skill, and then they go back to school, or they get better at something, or they take a, a lateral job so that later they can move forward, or they join the military, or they— but you see, if, if you don't—if you don't get engaged in that life stage progression, if you're just kind of like, yeah, I'm single, like, we're going to do this for a while, 
what happens is, is it stalls out your dramatic felt need to become a great man or woman, to be really disciplined, to learn how to work harder, how to progress in your career, how to build a family, how to love another person, how to deal with the opposite sex, how to do all these things, how to, how to cook, how to seek God together with a spouse, what to do with your marriages on the rocks, all that stuff. You tend to get a fire in your belly about it when you realize you're going to face it all relatively soon. But if you're 21 and you're thinking about getting married at somewhere around 36, then it doesn't really— And so what you have to—I believe that normatively, we're going to—we're supposed to pass on life. That means that you're going to have to, like, get married and have children, the vast majority of us. And that means that's coming— That means you have to intentionally seek a suitable spouse. That means you have to do all the things that amount to you being exploited for the next generation to live. Right? That's what human life is, right? You could decide to be this, like, single free rider on the whole human system and let other people have kids and pay for your retirement if you want to do that, but for the most part, it's dramatically selfish. Unless you have the gift of singleness, and then you use your single state to bless the humanity that you're part of. That's not what most people are doing with their singleness, especially people in their 20s. And so I think one of the things that if we could hit one thing, it would be don't get settled in that life stage. And even if you can't find a suitable person to marry, or you wish not to marry, you have to have a bigger dream for that than nothing. You still should have a 70-year-old version of yourself that you are pursuing with laser-like intensity. And if you have that vision, then you will pursue the sorts of things that will lead you to become that kind of person. For the leading generation, I would consider myself in this group, um, there's generally this feeling like we have so much responsibility and our lives are complex enough that we do not have margin for these people. And um, and some, for some of us that we're not really doing it right anyway, so what do we really have to offer? And I'm not really in a big rush to train up a new generation to replace me because I have a couple more decades of me being in my prime, thank you very much. <clears throat> that may be true at your workplace if you want to keep your job. I'm not, I don't have a comment about that. That's not true in ministry, and that's not true in family. Training up people and helping mentor people so they they can be great men and women, great husbands and wives, great mothers and fathers, does not put your livelihood at risk. It keeps their future children from being at risk and their marriages from being at risk and things like that. And what you need to do is you need to demand of the people that you mentor that they insert yourselves into your life on the basis of your convenience. And you need to not be ashamed to ask for that. So listen, what I tell a 20, if a 20-something comes and asks me to do something mentoring with them, what I tell them is, listen, for every hour I give you, you need to save me an hour. Because listen, my life is full. I'm at 100% capacity right now. So if I'm going to give you an hour, I need to get back an hour. And so I'm not afraid to ask them to run an errand for me. I'm not afraid to have them mow my lawn. I'm not afraid to do that stuff. Because the time I give them, I believe, is valuable. I've worked really hard for not 39 years, but probably about 22, to, to try to make sure that what I have to offer is valuable. And what I have to offer, I do believe, is valuable. And so I'm not afraid to say, listen, 
You need to insert yourself into my life where I can invite you in so that I'm talking to you and doing something else. So for example, um, I drove to Kentucky twice this last year to nonprofit board meetings. So I invited the interns that were available to drive with me. You're going to stay with me in a hotel, we're going to drive overnight, but we're going to have 14 hours together. And so Luke came with me twice. And I spent— carry the— no, I'm just kidding. 28—I spent 28 hours with Luke. And we talked about a lot of stuff about ministry and life and all those kinds of things. But he also helped me drive safely to where I was going. He also—I always try to take a male companion on every trip with me to eliminate temptation and those kinds of things. And there were a number of purposes that he served for me. And when I got back, I wasn't exhausted because I didn't do most of the driving. And I napped when I darn well felt like it. So that when I came home, I had something to give my family, and I could love my wife because I wasn't exhausted from this trip, but Luke got something out of it too. And people who are in this leading, if you live a highly productive life, people are going to want you to mentor them, and you're going to either have to say no to all of them, or you're going to have to say, I need you— yes— but I need you to invite you into my life in a certain kind of a way. And if they say no, then they don't value your time very much, and you shouldn't be mentoring them anyway. Not in this life stage. And if they say yes, then you can work it out. You can almost always work it out. And then lastly, the advising generation. What is most common in the advising generation is to feel rejected by the people that you've handed things off to, that they're tearing down a good bit of what you built, and that therefore you want to withdraw to uh, uh, the community of advising generation people and commiserate with each other. One of the things that I know is going to happen, let's just say that you are, you are as unfortunate as like I'm your pastor until I'm like 68 or something. Okay, don't even, don't even think about it. You'll have to put out your mind's eye, but just imagine. Um, I know that the person who comes after me, let's say his name is Freddie, right? I know that that guy is going to tear down a bunch of things that I built intentionally. He's just going to believe different things. He's going to think different thoughts. He's going to want to put the emphasis here rather than there. And even if we pick a really orthodox, Jesus-loving, focused, godly, good exegete, good preaching, like all the things I think are important, we pick that person, he's going to come in here, and he's just going to burn down a bunch of stuff that I built. And that's just going to happen. And I just have to deal with that. And then I'm going to have to watch that, and I'm going to have to affirm and encourage him. And then I'm going to have to cry when I'm by myself. Right? And then if in the affirming and encouraging he asks me for advice, I'll give him some advice. But it will be affirming and encouraging advice whenever it can be. Because that will be my job. Because I can't go back and throw him out and rebuild and live forever and like bring in the millennium on my immortality. Like, I'm gonna die. I'm quickly passing. The sooner we get a better pastor than me, the better. And that would be great. Like, listen, if Luke comes back in like seven years, he's like way better than me at like everything pastor. Like, I, I hope to God I will get out of the way and affirm him. There's always work for us to do. And demotions are beautiful things because someone better has been supplied than you. Right? I'm not saying it worked like the political ones. I mean, in the kingdom of God, when you really get replaced by someone better— It's wonderful. And we have to be—and listen, listen. I find even that thought experiment hard. Some of you have to live it in real life. Watching your children do that, 
and watching the people you've handed off your business to or your work to, the people that you've ministered and now you're handing your small group off to somebody else. There's all kinds of things that we hand off and we watch them do stuff with it. And yet, if we want to have the continued influence that we're meant to have, if we want to bear fruit in our old age, if we want to be green and, and lush, becoming more alive, the more physically decrepit we become, we have to fulfill the role of our generational place at that time, which is we have to be part of the affirming and advising generation. And it's hard to be an affirmer and an advisor when you feel like you're getting rejected and pushed to the side. It's really hard. And I think that's why God calls the most mature generation to do what might be the hardest job. Do not underestimate the importance of loving all generations from all generations. Because there is a symbiosis that happens when a church or people is truly intergenerational. There is a kind of heat that the younger emerging adults bring. Why is it like this? We should do this. They bring their strength. They bring their intensity. And there is a platform on which the older generation has built, and they are the living memory of a people. And they hold it there because you can't pound on nothing. And then the leading generation is responsible for the skillful stroke. And there is a heat, and there is a base. It's, it's, it's like being a blacksmith, right? And if you take out any one of those three things, and you make nothing. And you see, for people like me, I'm—I work hard. I'm trying to be this, like, I'm trying to be, like, Thor, blacksmith-wise. You know, like, I'm trying to be great, and I get tired, and I get surged all the time. And listen, having a bunch of 20-somethings breathing down my neck is actually really good for me. Because if they respect me, I respect their commitment and their, and their loyalty, and I want to be the leader they wish I could be that they want to follow. I want to be that person, really. And there's an enormous amount of lift I get from that pressure. And I also want to be the pastor that when the older people who called me to this church, the, the pastors, they were hoping I would be. I'm, I'm lifted by that, and I'm drawn by that to try to be that kind of person. And, and younger people are drawn along when we affirm them, and we make space for them. And when we listen to older people and we allow them to affirm and encourage and advise us, it enriches and it strengthens us. And there is a, there's a feedback to all that. There's a way these three things grow together that make them much stronger than any of them can be by themselves. There is no church stronger than an intergenerational one. But there, is, there are few tasks harder than really weaving a truly intergenerational love. So let me give you two last exhortations. One is to younger people. Submitting to older people isn't humiliation. That is, having humility isn't humiliation. What I mean is this. You might feel like saying, you, look, you should seek a mentor. You really need this input. You really need people to mentor you. You might think, look, I'm a grown-up. I pay my bills. I can do this. And I'm not saying that's not true. What I'm saying is this. So this, this picture is of the Grand Canyon, and this is the Rim Trail. It goes all the way around the rim of the Grand Canyon. Now, I'd say it's something like this. When you're in your early 20s and you are in the emerging generation and you are a real adult, it's like you're standing at the trailhead. 
you can see, you can see the whole canyon. Like, you are looking at the same thing. And you can see a lot. If there's like a big fire, like, you can see the smoke, and nobody should tell you you don't. But what experience does is it walks you along the path, and everywhere along the path, you get a new view. And so you're seeing the same thing, life, from lots of different perspectives. And you're seeing down this way, and through that way, and over this thing, and down through that thing. And some of you have to go through some pretty deep valleys along the way, and you get to walk down in here. And you see a lot of stuff that you just don't see from here, even though you see a lot from here. That is what—that is really what humility towards an older person is about. It's not that you don't see the lay of the land. It's not that you're not an adult. It's not that you're not making contributions. It's not that you don't—haven't seen things that other people haven't seen. It's not that you don't have a lot to add. It's just to say that you haven't hiked the whole rim, and you haven't seen it from every angle. And when that happens, it really does change some of your perspectives on what you're looking at. And those added perspectives, the scouting report that you can receive from someone who's walked before you, is enormously valuable. Because you don't even know what bad assumptions you're making from there that are really obvious from there. Does that make sense? What I would say to people who are in the more veteran generations is this. Do not miss this opportunity. For some reason or another, there have been a lot of younger people who've come to High Point. A lot of them have stayed here. They're right around you. A lot of them have entered into mentoring relationships. In fact, here's what my wife tells me about the women's mentoring. And I know this is probably true about the men's too. I know it's probably true. Don't, just don't listen to that part. Um, she has, Alexia has quite a few more women who've signed up to be mentored than she has mentors. That, let's, let's just kill that, right? Let's end that. Um, to have more young people saying, I am ready for an older person that I haven't even met. I am ready, Lexi, for you to tell me who I'm going to listen to. And I'm going to meet with that person, and I'm going to listen to them, and I'm going to take seriously what they want to share with me. To have more of those than we have, people who are willing to spout off what they've learned, is probably not—we don't have to keep it that way, I don't think. And so don't, don't miss this. Don't miss the opportunity. If you're older, don't miss the opportunity to affirm and encourage. Just find something nice to say, something affirming, even if it sounds a little weird to them. Don't let them think that you're curmudgeonly watching them and silently disapproving from them while they breathe. Get in there and, aff- and affirm what they could do. Affirm the good things that they are doing. Affirm that they, that they care about the gospel and they want to know the scriptures and— just don't, just don't miss this opportunity. Because, because what the Bible says is that if our, if our faith is really rooted in Jesus, then the older we get, the more alive we get. The, though our body may be wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. That though um, we may struggle with lots of things, we can bear fruit even in our old age. Leave you one last illustration. My brother's a physicist, engineer, and what they say in physics is if you haven't had your big idea by 28, you're not going to have one. Um, In physics and math, especially in theory, almost nobody comes up with a radical new idea that changes the field after about 28 years old. But in ministry, 
in life, in terms of building the fruit of godliness in others, your last seasons can be your most fruitful. There is no limiting factor. The more you suffer, the more difficult your life, the more, the more hard it, the harder it has been to learn these things, the more fruit of richness you have, and it is ever increasing upon itself, so that the very end of your life can actually be the most fruitful it's ever been when it comes to ministry and when it comes to mentoring and helping people live life beautifully and well. And I want you to remember that this was the statement God ended the Old Testament with. It was in the first five commands of the Ten Commandments. And it is the part of the first Christian sermon that said, this is how you know redemption is flowing among a people and that the Spirit has been poured out of them. That they, both young and old, are full of the Spirit and drawn to each other and growing in godliness together. And I believe that for all the great stuff that's happening related to that in this local church, I believe that there's even more. And remember, it is the first command in the Bible that has tied to it the promise of blessing. Let's pray. Father, as we, um, as we think about these things in our church, and as we try to value these things day in and day out, I pray first that you would, um, you would work in such a way as to undo the basic miscommunications that naturally happen between the generations and that, um, and that the evil one can easily capitalize on. It's so easy, it seems, to drive us apart along these generational lines, but I pray that you would build in us an incredible intergenerational commitment. I pray it would start with the oldest people, the most veteran people, and that it would come down through the ages from there. And that from—that even little children would experience and just know, even though they couldn't tell you, they would just know from the age—from when they were a toddler, that they grew up in a place that loved all generations from all generations because of the one who saved all generations. Please help us out of a conviction about who you are to embrace what you command and bless that we would love all generations from all generations. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.